Hello, and welcome to the DC Insider Employer Update Podcast. This podcast updates you with the expertise and current insight of the Washington, D.C.-based attorneys from the Fortney Scott Law Firm. Each episode highlights the most important issues and analysis that employers need to know in order to understand and react to key federal developments affecting their business. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice on any subject matter. Now let's turn it over to our host. Welcome, everyone, to our next edition of the DC Insider Podcast. I'm Bert Fishman, and I'll be joined today with my colleagues, John Clifford. Hello, John. Hi, Bert. Thanks for having me. And Savannah Suncheck. Hi there, Savannah. Hi there, Bert. How are you? Fine, thank you. Well, we have new speakers today because we have a brand new topic, the Department of Labor's long-awaited independent contractor regulations, which have just been published. We hope to help everyone understand what they say and what they mean. The definition of an independent contractor has been the subject of Department of Labor interpretation literally for decades. Contractors enjoy independence, but they enjoy few of the rights and benefits of being an employee. Such stuff as minimum wage, no overtime, no pension rights, no unions, not even federal civil rights protections, all of which has led to allegations of misclassification and some claims of worker dissatisfaction. In the past decade or so, with the explosive growth of remote work and gig workers, independent contractor status has become one of the most important and certainly most controversial topics in workplace law. Virtually every business may be affected by these proposed regulations, as this rule and its interpretation will play a role in who and how many people are hired, in what jobs, and with what legal protections. Contractors have 45 days from the date of publication, which was October 11th, so they have until November 28th, 2022, to submit their comments, and then I'm sure, as we'll learn, the litigation will begin. Savannah? Can you get us started with the basics of the economics realities test? Absolutely, Bert. So as you alluded to, the economic realities test is a test used to determine whether or not a given worker is an employee or an independent contractor. And some version of this test has been in place since the 1940s. Courts in the Department of Labor use it. And it essentially asks, is the worker economically dependent on the employer? Then if so, that person should really be treated as an employee. And the opposite is true, right? So if the worker is economically independent of the employer, then they can be classified as an independent contractor. And the way that the test goes is that you typically apply six to seven different factors. I won't go through all the factors that have been used by courts and Department of Labor over the years, but I'll give a couple examples that I think are useful. A big factor has always been the control factor. And so that asks what amount of control is the employer exerting over the means and manner of the work? So effectively, how much control is the employer exerting over the worker, right? Are they setting the workers hours of work? Are they setting the workers days of work? The more control that the employer is exhibiting, the more likely that the worker should really be classified as an employee rather than an independent contractor. Another example is the duration of the relationship. So in this factor, it asks, does the worker have a continuous or ongoing relationship with the employer? If they do, then that suggests that the person is an employee, whereas someone who perhaps is only brought on to perform one particular discrete task or or one particular project, 
well, then that person is more likely to be an independent contractor. Thanks, Ivana. John, over the years, there have been varying ways of applying this test. I know that things have changed repeatedly over the last 20 years, but I know the most recent change is the one initiated by uh, the Trump administration. Can you tell us how that used these economic uh, realities rules? Sure, absolutely, Bert. Yeah, and people may be wondering, as Savannah said, if the same rule has been in place for decades and decades, why all the urgency to now change this back by the Biden administration? And that goes back to the rule that the Trump administration finalized quite literally in the final days of Trump's presidency. On January 7th, uh, 2021, the Department of Labor pushed out a final rule on the classification of independent contractors. And the purpose, uh, at least the stated purpose of that rule was to streamline that economic realities test that Savannah was just describing with the purpose of providing additional clarity to employers so they could know with more certainty uh, whether these workers were contractors or employees. Under the Trump era rule, while it remained an economic realities analysis and the ultimate question of whether they were economically dependent on the employer remained the same, the big change was to the factors that were considered. The analysis put out five factors that were considered, and while many of them matched the traditional factors that Savannah was just referring to, the big change was focusing on two core factors, the nature and degree of control over the work and the worker's opportunity for profit and loss. So this focusing on two core factors, essentially giving them more weight than the other factors, was the primary change. And that's what was intended to give employers additional certainty. If you can meet those two factors, uh, you could, in all likelihood, be sure that these workers would be considered independent contractors. There was also a change in focus on what the practice of the employer and the worker was, as opposed to what the contract may have allowed for. In other words, it was the employer actually exhibiting control over the worker as opposed to just the contract, perhaps giving them the right to exert control over the worker. So a practice over possibility, I guess you could say. And both of these changes were really viewed as employer friendly and made it a much stronger chance of workers being considered independent contractors as opposed to the previous practice that had been in place for years and years. And so, Bert, I know that brought us up to the Biden administration and how we got there. And as you know, this isn't the first attempt trying to rescind that rule from the Trump administration. No, it certainly isn't. As you can imagine, the Biden administration did not like the Trump rule at all and almost immediately attempted to rescind it. The rule was supposed to be effective in March 2021. In early March of 2021, the Biden administration sought to rescind the Trump rule. That was challenged in court. And a year later, in March 2022, a judge rejected the rescission effort and ruled that the Trump regulation was in effect. And from that day to this, the Biden Department of Labor has been working to draft a new regulation, which kind of brings us to where we are now. And perhaps we can pick it up here and tell us what the basic principles are in the new rule. Absolutely. I think in reviewing the proposed rule, and likely to the surprise of no one, what it does is repeal the Trump era rule, and it returns us to the Obama administration's multi-factor uh, analysis. That was a what's referred to as a totality of the circumstances analysis. So that discussion of the core factors that Trump rule focused on, they've reverted and gotten rid of those and gone back to the more traditional review of the factors. 
And Savannah, I know you've touched on the factors, the traditional factors previously. How do the factors in this rule match up with those traditional ones? They do to a large degree. I mean, we we see kind of all the usual suspects here for the most part. But as we'll discuss a little later, the devil is in the details, right? How does the Department of Labor actually plan on applying this regulation based upon some of the examples that we see in the proposed regulation? But just to give listeners an idea of the six factors, I'm, I'm going to give them to you real quickly. The first is the worker's opportunity for profit or loss based on managerial skill. Another factor is the degree of permanence of the relationship between the worker and the employer. So that's a factor that I was talking about a little bit earlier. Another factor is the extent to which the work is an integral part of the business. Additionally, the investments by the worker and the employer is another factor. The nature and degree of control of over the work by the employer. Again, that's another one that I was mentioning earlier. And finally, the skill and initiative required for the work. But I should also mention that there's a, a secret seventh category that in the proposed regulation, the Department of Labor says that there may be additional factors that should be considered in the analysis, but it's secret because they don't tell us what those additional factors might be. So listeners have just as good of an idea of what those factors might be as we do. They don't even provide us with any examples, which I found surprising, candidly. Well, now that we have the secret sauce, John, maybe you can make a Big Mac out of it. You know, we have all the ingredients in the recipe. Why don't we make the cake? So why don't you tell us about how the rule is going to work? I'll start, Bert, with just touching on the DOL's justification for this rule, and they view it as a return to the norm. They think it's justified, and the basis for it is that it's a return to the case law that had been in place since the 40s and also consistent with years of DOL guidance uh, prior to the Trump administration. So that consistency, that means, and I already mentioned this, but the factors do not have any predetermined weights. Again, no core factors. That's gone out the window. And the factors will be considered comprehensively in the DOL's words. So they state this as a return to the norm, But the question is, with the return to the norm, are we also returning to that uncertainty that sort of plagued this analysis for years and years? And where does that leave the employers that are trying to apply this test? When you don't have any weighted factors and they can all be applied in any comprehensively in any manner that the person doing the analysis wishes, it really leaves employers with a lack of clarity or a lack of a final answer on how their workers should be seen. And perhaps you know, the biggest red flag for employers may be that this is subject to individual judgment, uh, how the factors are to be applied, what the most important factor may be. That is subject to individual judgment, and it's subject to the whim of the administration or the control of the Department of Labor at the time. So there's no secret in the current administration where that's leaning, that they they want to be employee friendly. And, you know, I think we see that in the descriptions of how these are to be applied in the examples of how these are to be applied. Thank you for mentioning those examples, John, because I know the DOL insists that we're returning to normal. But Savannah, how do you think this rule, if it's ever issued, will affect workers and employees when the rubber meets the road? Well, Bert, I think it's going to result in the classification of more workers as employees than under the prior rule, although, of course, to some degree that remains to be seen. I'll give you an example of why. I talked about that duration of the relationship factor earlier where 
it suggests that workers with ongoing or continuous relationships with an employer should really be classified as employees. But in the proposed regulation, there's some very interesting language, which I think really shows how eager the department is to classify as, as many individuals as employees as possible. They state that a contract that is routinely or automatically renewed indicates employee status. So why am I pulling that language out? Well, a lot of employers have essentially a number of contractors on retainer. And under this language from the proposed regulation, that suggests that those people should really be considered employees. And so I, I do think that that shows the eagerness of the department to put as many folks under the employee label as possible. Any other examples like that? I know there are a bunch that seem to indicate that this rule may be targeted at uh, the gig economy or the ride-sharing economy. Are there any other examples? I know that this has caused quite a bit of concern in the labor press that we all read. Bert, let me take a shot at that. And I'm glad you mentioned the ride-sharing and, and the gig economy, because when you dig into the details of this proposed rule and the examples they provide, the Department of Labor is really making no secrets, in my opinion, of who they may be targeting with this rule. There are several examples where their review of the factors, they choose to include language saying that driving is not alone enough to be seen as an independent contractor. Owning a car may not be seen as an investment that supports an independent contractor finding. Those are just a couple of the examples, and I know that some of the other factors include similar ones, but it almost seems that they go out of their way in, in certain places to point out, we haven't forgotten about the gig economy, and this is, it certainly seems as if a target. Savannah, did you notice that? Yeah. Another one that stuck out to me is that they said that simply having the ability to earn more money because you can work more hours or work more quickly is, is not going to make you an independent contractor. I mean, that seems to me directly targeted at Uber, right? If you choose to drive two more hours for Uber on a given night, they're saying, well, that doesn't suggest that you're actually an independent contractor just because you have the ability to make more money that way. Am I also right in saying that they said that just because if you can't fix your own prices, that's an indication of being an employee. Even if you can work for more than one employer, that doesn't get you off the hook. There seem to be a lot of hints in the examples, if not in the actual rule, that this is kind of aimed at the DoorDashes and the Ubers and Lyfts that have grown up yeah. over the past half decade. And Bert, I'll give you one more uh, where they're focusing on the control of employees and or independent contractors. And for years, control had more traditionally been considered whether you control the time, the scheduling that they do it, the manner and means in which they complete a project. But they very openly state that the application now can consider other or alternative types of control, one being using technology to track your employees. Now, I know when we all open up the apps on our phones and track the Uber drivers and the DoorDash drivers uh, through those apps and where they are on the map, it will be interesting to see if that's viewed as control through these companies, knowing where their drivers are, when they're available, and how close they may be to a potential client. So they certainly give a lot of leeway here uh, and open it up for discussion on, on those points. You know, that's really a fascinating issue because there are other elements of the Labor Department that are very concerned about the increase of worker surveillance and think it's a bad way to go. And here we have a regulation that seems to indicate that surveillance is going to be an indication of employer control. They may not regulate, they may use to identify people as independent contractors or employees. Well, I can see that we've just about exhausted our time. Thank you for that wonderful explanation. But can you give us in the last minute or two, John, Savannah, one or two of your 
chief takeaways. I know the one that, John, that you mentioned that seems to strike me is that the uncertainty that's built into this regulation, I just don't understand how that's going to work in such a dynamic economy such as ours. And I kind of believe that we need a more certain or less ambiguous standard so that both employers and employees can rely on, but that remains to be seen. What are your takeaways, John? Well, Bert, in addition to the discussion of the gig economy, which I think we've already covered there, but one more key takeaway that I have is the focus here on what the agency refers to as reserved control and focusing on what contracts say an employer may do versus their actual practice. And for instance, do they have the ability to control or surveil or track these workers, not with consideration to whether they actually do? I think it's going to place a premium on employers going back into their contracts and seeing what's in there because this language, as we read it today in its proposed form, takes a lot of what I'll call standard independent contract language and flips it on its head. It's not a certainty that that's going to be allowed moving forward. Savannah, I know you have an interest in the role of uh, regulation and the court's oversight of regulation. How do you think it's going to play out here? Well, I think it's very likely that we will see some folks challenge the legitimacy of this regulation. You and I, Bert, have discussed in the past the phrase independent contractor does not appear anywhere in the FLSA. And I think that probably we'll see some court challenges to this regulation on the grounds that actually Department of Labor does not have the ability to regulate independent contractors. I'm not saying that those challenges will be ultimately successful, but I do think that it's something that we're likely to see in the coming months. Well, thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you, Savannah, for that terrific overview. We hope everyone that was listening enjoyed and will uh, profit from hearing this. And we hope you all subscribe to our podcast, uh, DC Insider Podcast. We come on about every two weeks. It's available on the Fortney Scott website and on all the usual suspects, Spotify, etc. So thanks again for everybody joining us. And I will look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks, everyone. We look forward to the next update. For those that would like to connect with any of the lawyers from Fortney Scott, please reach out to them directly by visiting FortneyScott.com. On the website, you can also listen to previous podcast episodes, as well as pick up your copy of the DC Insider Report and sign up for future updates. Thanks so much for listening.